Welcome to Sunday School. Thank you for being here. We continue in our study of the Answers Bible Curriculum, our study of the Scriptures, our survey study of the whole Bible, and our study of the New Testament. Right now we are in the book of Acts, right in the middle of the book of Acts. Remember what the book of Acts actually is. It is proof that Gentiles are true and full inheritors of salvation by faith in Christ. It is an explanation of the origin and first days of the church, of Christ's church. And it is an illustration of many of the promises and truths of the Bible in action. See God fulfilling his promises. We see what righteous ministry looks like, those kinds of things. In these ways, Acts is a very valuable book to us. Over the last two lessons, we've been looking at Paul's first two missionary journeys. Let's see if you can remember. To what areas did Paul primarily minister in on his first missionary journey? Two main areas. Yeah, it's still a little bit quiet. I think, Roy, were you saying something? Right, so Galatia, Galatia being central Anatolia, modern Turkey, and one other place. Macedonia is actually the second missionary journey. We'll get to that. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that in just a second. Cyprus was the first. Uh, Cyprus was the other location of the first missionary journey. I mean, they go to Cyprus and Galatia. That's where they primarily go. On the second missionary journey, they revisit some of the areas they went to on the first journey, but then they go to Macedonia and Greece. Those are the two main sites for the second missionary journey. Today we're talking about the third missionary journey. And our agenda is going to be similar to what it was last week. Since uh, the journey covers text that's too much for us to look at ourselves in detail, we're going to overview the third missionary journey. We're going to then zero in on a more specific site of ministry, actually the main site of ministry in Paul's third missionary journey, Paul's ministry in Ephesus. So look at what happens while Paul is at Ephesus. And then when Paul circles back around near Ephesus on his way uh, to the end of his third missionary journey, we'll also look at what Paul gives as a message of exhortation to the Ephesian elders. All right, let's pray. My Lord and God, our great God, I pray that you would bless us now as we look into your word this hour. Help me to be able to explain it. I pray that people will be encouraged as they look at the examples that are given to us in the book of Acts, these illustrations of your truth. I pray that it would have its building up effect, that Jesus, you would build up your church in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 18, so you can more or less follow along in the text as we overview Paul's third missionary journey. So what is the third missionary journey all about? It's mostly about the city of Ephesus. That's where Paul spends most of his time during his third missionary journey. But it also includes lots of revisiting the other cities that Paul had been to previously. And we'll, we'll go through the general sequence of that. You can find all the details of Paul's third missionary journey given to us in, or given to us in the book of Acts from Acts chapter 18, verse 23, to Acts chapter 21, verse 17. So it covers a bunch of chapters. It starts like his first two in Syrian Antioch. So you can see my mouse here, this Antioch in ancient Syria, modern Turkey, starts towards the middle of the 50s AD. There's some differences among interpreters. Answers in Genesis puts it a little bit later. Uh, the 
my notes from seminary put it at 53 to 56 AD. So around that time, 53 to 56. And we start with Paul revisiting some of the churches in Asia Minor, those from his first missionary journey. He starts in um, Galatia, or he heads to Galatia and Phrygia in central Anatolia. That lasts from chapter 18, verse 23, chapter er, to verse 27. But once we hit chapter 19, it's all Ephesus. So Ephesus here, this coastal city on the western part of the province of Asia. All of chapter 19 is just Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And Paul spends about three years there. So a long time. And while he's there, he writes another letter that ends up in our scriptures. He writes 1 Corinthians. He writes 1 Corinthians while he's in Ephesus. And you can actually see this right in the letter of 1 Corinthians. You go to 1 Corinthians 16, 8, and you hear this from Paul. 1 Corinthians 16, 8. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. That's pretty cool. You kind of see that this letter didn't come out of nowhere. It actually it, it appears right in historical sequence. We'll talk a little bit more uh, in the further on in the class what actually happened at Ephesus. But Paul spends a long time there. After Ephesus and going into chapter 20, Paul transitions to strengthening the churches in Macedonia and Greece. So traveling from Ephesus going up to the northeast tip of Macedonia, back through where he came the first time. We see this in chapter 20, verses 1 to 5. Starts in Macedonia. While passing through Macedonia, he writes 2 Corinthians, probably from Philippi. And then when he makes his way down all the way to Corinth, he writes another letter. He writes the epistle to the Romans. And again, for each of these books, you can see how the details of the letter actually correspond to those historical details. We don't have time to go through them right now, but you can investigate that yourself. But once he reaches Corinth, he's uh, he decides that he wants to do something a little different than his first two journeys. Rather than heading back to Antioch, he decides he wants to head to Jerusalem. Chapter 20, verse 6, all the way to chapter 21, verse 17, is Paul's journey to Jerusalem. Initially, he was going to go by sea, but a plot of the Jews, while he's in Corinth, makes him go back a different direction. He decides to backtrack, basically, through Greece and Macedonia, come down the western side of the province of Asia, and then go overseas. Now, Paul is very intent on reaching Jerusalem in quick fashion. So, though he passes by Ephesus, he's determined not to stop in the city again, though he does want to speak with the elders of Ephesus at the nearby city of Miletus. We hear about that event in chapter 20, verse 17 to verse 38. And we'll be coming back a little bit later on to talk about that. It's very apparent in these uh, chapter 19 and 20 that Paul has an intense desire for Jerusalem. A key verse actually appears in chapter 19, verse 21. If you just look in your Bible, chapter 19, verse 21, notice what it says. It says, now after these things were finished. Oh, by the way, this is this is when Paul was still in Ephesus. Now, after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the spirit, or purposed in his spirit, to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So even before he's gone through Macedonia and Greece, we see this purpose 
settled in Paul. I need to go to Jerusalem and I need to go to Rome. And then we see that purpose being worked out in chapters 20 and 21. For instance, chapter 20, verse 16. If you just look over there, chapter 20, verse 16, it says, For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that we would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Additionally, three times in this final section, Paul warns or is warned that suffering awaits him in Jerusalem for the Lord's sake. And I'll show you each one of those. Chapter 20, verses 22 to 23, verses 22 and 23 of, the same, of, of chapter 20, it says, uh, this is part of Paul's message to the Ephesian elders. And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. And then in chapter 21, verse 4. Chapter 21, verse 4 says, After looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days, and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. And then a little bit further in the chapter, 21, verses 10 to 14. Verse 10 as we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hand of the Gentiles. When we had heard this, as well as the local res or we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, The will of the Lord be done. Now think about all that for just a second. Here we have someone with an intense drive to go to Jerusalem out of a desire to do God's will, despite suffering foretold in Jerusalem at least three times, and despite even his own friends telling him not to go. Does this remind you of anyone we know? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ experienced the same things. In fact, which gospel writer is the most purposeful in noting Jesus' drive to fulfill God's purpose in Jerusalem? It's Luke. Yeah, Luke 9.51, maybe you're familiar with that verse where it says, When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined, or he set his face, to go to Jerusalem. And then you can see this, this drive, this incessant movement from Jesus toward Jerusalem. Now this parallelism between Jesus and Paul is no accident. Same writer, Luke, is showing us that Paul is indeed a true apostle. He preaches Jesus' gospel faithfully, and he walks in the very footsteps of his Lord. And really, this is what all Christians should be like, right? That's our calling. 1 John 2, 5 and 6 says, this is 1 John 2, 5 and 6. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Of course, not every Christian has to go to Jerusalem. But the very same kinds of things that were happening in Jesus are the things that happened in Paul. Of course, Paul doesn't perish in Jerusalem either, like Jesus did. His 
his uh, persecution, his suffering is extended in a way to go all the way to Rome. But you can certainly see the parallels. And Paul would be martyred just as his Lord was. Of course, that martyrdom is a ways off. God still had much to accomplish through the Apostle Paul in the meantime. The third missionary journey is another big trip for Paul. A total of 2,700 miles approximately by land and sea, which to give you a sense, that's about the same distance that one would travel from L.A. to Calvary and Somerset. <laughs> it's about 2,700 miles. It took about three to four years, and it was a lot of work. Constant ministry, travel, and as we'll see, Paul was also working during his missionary journey just to support himself and his companions. He worked a job, not necessarily constantly, but certainly a good portion of the time. So this was a lot of work, and this was clearly the Lord's servant acting in a disciplined fashion. I should mention, some have suggested that Paul's desire to go to Jerusalem was misguided or even sinful. And there is some reason to say that because of what Acts 21 verse 4 says. If you go back and look at that, it says, Paul was told by others through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. So if that's the case, was Paul simply a stubborn apostle with a martyr's complex? Well, I do grant that apostles are capable of error. I mean, we see that with Peter. And even Paul would say that he does, he's not perfect. I would say that this decision to go to Jerusalem was not a mistake. That verse, Acts 21 verse 4, can be explained not as a command from the Spirit for Paul not to go, but rather an urging from Paul's friends who, once they knew what the Spirit was foretelling in Jerusalem, they urged Paul not to go. So it wasn't a command from the Spirit. It was just people using the revelation of the Spirit and then reacting to it. And why do I say that? Well, because that's exactly what we see later in the chapter. Acts 21, verses 10 to 14, we see revelation. You're going to suffer in Jerusalem, Paul. And then all the friends saying, don't go. So that's probably what we're seeing in Acts 21, verse 4. We could add some other reasons to that. Paul says in chapter 20, verse 22, that he's bound in the spirit to go to Jerusalem. Paul's proven very sensitive to the spirit's instruction and leading up to this point. So we should we have very little reason to say that suddenly he's going to turn rebellious against the spirit. Moreover, as we've already noted, there's clear parallel between Jesus and Paul. If Paul's mistaken to go to Jerusalem, then why is Luke setting up that parallel? And how does that advance the purpose of Luke's writing of the book of Acts? He's trying to encourage Theophilus and the other Gentiles that they do have true salvation. How is that purpose advanced by showing that their apostle went into great and stubborn error out of vain glory? That would make Paul seem like a vain wannabe in his journey to Jerusalem rather than a faithful apostle. And that would be highly unsettling to the Gentile Christians won through Paul's ministry. And we could add finally that in chapter 23, verse 11, God himself affirms Paul's ministry in Jerusalem. 23:11, God comforts Paul by saying, and this is right after all the explosion of persecution there. God says to Paul, verse 11, actually a little bit of narrative right before that. But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, take courage. For as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. Now, that's not God making the best out of Paul's rebellion. No, that's God affirming and encouraging Paul and saying, you're doing what is right 
and you're going to continue to be a witness for me when I bring you to Rome. So indeed, I would say that Paul's journey to Jerusalem is, is an exemplary act of faith rather than a drive for vainglory. Now, having overviewed this third missionary journey, let's now turn to the description of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. So turn back to Acts chapter 19. We're going to look at verses 8 to 20. The first part of Acts 19 mentions how Paul finds a small group of disciples who were following um, who had been converted and were following the teaching of John the Baptist. He instructs them, meets with them, uh, tells them about the Lord Jesus more specifically, and they receive the Holy Spirit. But we're going to pick up what the narrative describes right after that. So verses 8 to 20, Acts 19. Let's look at that. And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul. But who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on, them all, or leapt on them and subdued them all and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Many also, the, many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. All right, we'll pause there. And let's follow our Bible study method. Observe, interpret, apply. Start with observations, basic observations of the details of the text. Notice in Ephesus, we see Paul go right back to his standard ministry method. Start in the synagogue, and he teaches there for about three months until opposition grows too great. He does this thing, warns the Jews, and then leaves and preaches to the Gentiles somewhere else. And notice where he goes with the disciples that he had won. He goes to the school of Tyrannus. So this is uh, right close by a facility that would have been used during the morning, but then it would have a break time in the afternoon, and that's probably where Paul gathered with the disciples to teach them. And this is interesting because this shows us that not all church gatherings were in homes, even though that's what we see most of the time in the book of Acts. You can use public buildings like a school, too. It's not really about the building. It's about the assembly of the disciples. And he teaches in this school, notice it says, it teaches the disciples there for two years. And then notice the effect. It says, all who lived in Asia 
heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That's, that's a pretty striking statement. All who lived in Asia? Now remember, we're talking about Asia not being the continent of Asia, the Roman province of Asia, Western Anatolia. Remember, he was formally forbid to preach in this area because God wanted him to get to Macedonia. But now, as he says in 1 Corinthians, a wide door had opened for ministry. You may notice a strong emphasis on the supernatural and the miraculous in the city of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a large city. It was the capital of the Roman province of Asia, and this was a very wealthy province of the Roman Empire. It could have had as many as 250,000 people in this city. That was one of the largest of the ancient world, uh, largest at that time. All kinds of people. But we can see that there seems to be uh, a strong desire for and obsession with magic. People wanting to practice magic, have magic be used on their behalf, in awe of magic and other supposed supernatural powers. But then the Apostle Paul comes into the city and a greater and truer supernatural power is on display. Notice verse 12 says, there were many extraordinary miracles. And they are pretty extraordinary. Mere pieces of clothing that touch Paul can be brought to various people. And as soon as the cloth touches them, the demon is cast out or they're totally healed. That's pretty fantastic. But if you are a supposed magic worker and this Paul comes into town, what are you going to do? And how are you going to survive in that kind of competition? Well, you can do what the sons of Sceva tried to do, but that doesn't work out very well, as you can see in the text. Or you can do what many others in the town do, which is just give it up. We see people... As they hear the gospel, as they see these miracles accomplished in the name of Christ, they confess their sins, they repent, and they throw away their magic books. Now, what are we talking about when we say magic? Were they indeed practicing something of substance in Ephesus? We can ask the same question about those who claim supernatural power today. Is there anything to it? Well, I think there are probably three ways that we can explain what's going on when somebody supposedly practices magic. One is that it comes from it comes from demons. It's a cult's power. And we know that this is a thing because we do see it manifest even in the book of Acts. Back in Philippi, you remember that slave girl? She was able to bring her masters much profit because the demon in her allowed her to be a fortune teller. So it's not impossible for someone who is demon-possessed to have some abilities that wouldn't be normal. That's one explanation. Of course, that is not to the benefit of the person. Certainly, it's impressive. And whatever a demon-possessed person might have in terms of power is, is inferior and subservient to God's power. So we would, even if we were to, to encounter someone with a demon, we have nothing to fear. But that is perhaps one way that even people in Ephesus were seeking to practice magic. Another is that it's just the illusions and trickery. We are maybe less in awe of this kind of magic based on how much we know about magicians today, having so much history, having or technological advances, all those kinds of things. But you can imagine in the ancient world, someone who could pull off magic tricks was quite impressive. 
they, they didn't see these explanations as to how magicians did these things. And it would be easy to believe that these men indeed have supernatural powers. And these magicians, these supposed magic workers, they're just using clever feints and sleight of hand and illusions. It's nonetheless quite impressive. The third explanation is that it's really a manifestation of the placebo effect. Now, if you know what a placebo is, it's just the idea that something works or something has power because you believe it has power. And there have been many studies in modern times about the placebo effect. I remember listening to one, um, one little program talking about placebos, and, he, and there was this modern study done on hexes. Now, if you know what a hex is, it's kind of like a curse that could be cast on somebody, and it's to bring them harm or to even destroy them. And in this one study that these uh, researchers did, they looked at people who had hexes cast on them and whether anything actually happened to them. And they noticed something very striking. For those who had a hex on them and did not believe in hexes, they were fine. But for those who had a hex on them and did believe in hexes, they suffered greatly. And some of them even died. This is what the placebo effect can do. Now, the placebo effect's not totally, uh, it's not all powerful. And when, when it comes to medicine, the, we can observe the placebo effect, but it doesn't usually last uh, forever. It lasts for a short time and, and then it, it goes away. But you can see how from the placebo effect or even from merely confirmation bias, where you're looking whether something is true or not, you see something that, that seems to confirm it and now you believe in it. This is probably where we get some of the superstitions that still exist in our day today. Like, I know people don't take these too seriously, but breaking mirrors, black cats, Friday the 13th, those kinds of things. These, these things seem innocuous until something bad happens. And then people say, oh, it's true. I knew I shouldn't have done something on Friday the 13th and look, this bad thing happened. Now, now I know. And so the next time a Friday the 13th comes around, they're expecting something bad to happen. Or they may even act in such a way to cause something bad to happen. There's really nothing supernatural happening. It's just the effect of their own minds and how it changes their behavior or causes them to view circumstances. Certainly, this was an effect at work in the classical world. People believe strongly in the power of words and rituals to have a supernatural effect. And we can see this in things like curse tablets. I think we may have even mentioned curse tablets when we did some of our Sunday schools on biblical archaeology. But these exist. They've survived from the ancient world. And But what they basically are is you'd get a, a specific tablet. You'd write down a curse that you want to come down on a certain person. And then you'd submit that tablet into a sacred space. It might be a, a fountain, a religious fountain, or it might be part of a shrine. And the idea is because you've written those words, you, you've put down that spell that it will come to pass. And it will bring harm to the person that you don't like. And people believed in these things and different things would happen and they'd say, look, it worked. So these are probably the kind of things we're talking about in Ephesus when it comes to magic. People are looking to practice magic. They have all sorts of uh, books, scrolls that they've written down their various techniques, the kinds of spells that you would need to say or to write, the rituals you'd need to do. And this was a very important business in the city. 
And yet all of this was nothing like what God was doing through the Apostle Paul. And that's what the people noticed. Yeah, this wannabe exorcist, he cannot do what Paul does. And in verse 17, notice it says that people gained fear. Fear of Yahweh came upon them for what they were witnessing. They knew a true and greater power was coming to the city that they had never seen before. And they repent. Many of them do anyways. But notice they don't just repent. Verse 19, we see that many gather up their sorcery books and they publicly burn them. And we see right away that this, these books were not cheap. They were considered quite valuable to the people. As much as 50,000 pieces of silver. That's either a lot of books or very valuable books. Now, what are these 50,000 pieces of silver? That's probably referring to the Greek coin, the drachma, a silver coin equivalent to a day's work, very similar to the Roman denarius. So this bonfire, if it's 50,000 days of work, that's consuming property equivalent to 137 years of labor. Now imagine how much money you would make at your job if you worked at it for 137 years. Now imagine every, all the money, all the property you could obtain from that job, and then imagine burning it all up in public so that everyone else could see it. That's a pretty big deal. Can you imagine what these converts were doing? And notice verse 20, it says, So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Having made these observations, let's go to step two and talk about interpretation. Just a couple of questions to ask here. First, if Paul stayed in Ephesus, how did all Asia hear the word of the Lord? Right, it's probably not Paul going into the various regions. It's those who heard the word in Ephesus going back to those regions. Or for those who were converted in Ephesus, telling others, and the word continues to spread via a gospel chain. Paul remained in Ephesus, and yet his ministry had a wide effect. And it's probably from this that we see the origin of some, if not all, of the seven churches of Asia that appear later in Revelation. Also, the church of Colossae was probably started this way, one that Paul never visited, but one that uh, was indirectly affected by Paul's ministry, and also the church at Hierapolis. This was a, a great, great and gracious work of the Lord, a wide open door, just as Paul said. Another question. Why did the Ephesian converts burn their books publicly, even when they could have sold these books for a great profit? Obviously, it's not mentioned directly in the text, but what can we know from the rest of the scriptures? What is consistent with the gospel? We can infer some reasons. Yes. Right. Yeah. So this is certainly a mark of repentance. And when you know that these books are evil and useless, you don't want to delude others. You don't want to deceive others by giving them those books. That would be disingenuous. That would be 
saying one thing and acting in a way contradictory to it. Certainly there are several reasons why burning of these books would have been quite significant. It was indeed a confession of the evilness and the uselessness of their former way, especially with magic. And you can, you can understand that these magic spells written in these scrolls, these were not for righteous purposes. It's not like you were casting a spell because you wanted to give glory to God. No, this was to advance your own interests. This was to bring harm on your enemies. This was to get more wealth for you. And so these things themselves, there was nothing good in them. And they looked to a power that was outside of God. And they, yet this burning, this getting rid of the books, it was a strong testimony to the others in Ephesus, trying to help them see that magic spells and this devotion to power in your own way. This is useless and this is evil before, the, before God. There is a real power that people need to know about and come to terms with, the creator God. The Ephesian converts, they want other people to turn from what is useless and evil to the true God and the true power. But there's another reason why burning these books was important, and it's to prevent backsliding. By burning these books, they made sure that they and no one else could use these books again. And that is the difficulty with sin, isn't it? Because even when you resolve to turn away from an evil practice or a useless practice, one that you were accustomed to, it just comes back. It comes back, it whispers in your mind, seems to grab your ear and tell you that, you know what, maybe you went too far with this thing. Maybe you should reconsider. Maybe what you did before wasn't all that bad. Maybe you're mistaken in your understanding about God. But these Ephesian believers, when they've arrived at a moment of supreme clarity by understanding and believing the gospel, they want to make sure that they leave no opportunity for the flesh. And so they literally burn their bridges back to their old sinful way. Now, were they losing something valuable by doing this? Well, yes and no. The, wor the world sure thought it was valuable. But once you understand the gospel, you realize that these, these ways of magic and all former sinful ways, they're trash. They hinder you. They're a deficit in your spiritual finances. You want to be rid of those things. You're glad to be rid of them. And you can see, just as I was mentioning earlier, how various scriptures intersect with or are illustrated in what happens in Ephesus. Like you think about the words of Jesus when it came to this seriousness of sin. Matthew 18, 6, he says, don't you dare cause another believer to stumble. It'd be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea. Or Matthew 18, verses 8 to 9 where he talks about your own personal dealings with sin. If your hand or your foot cause you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. We see the Ephesian, the Ephesian believers acting on those truths. Or Romans 6, Romans 6 verses 21 to 22. Paul wrote, Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. So Paul was saying, you didn't get any benefit from your old way. There's no reason to hang on to it. Get rid of it. Or Philippians 3, verses 7 to 8. Paul writes, 
But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. We see that illustrated here as well. And also some words from the Psalms. Psalm 62, 11. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. Or Psalm 56, verse 4. In God, whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? They knew that they didn't have to rely on their spells anymore. They could believe in the power of God. You know what's interesting about this narrative report in uh, Acts 19? You can see some connections to the letter to the Ephesians. Some have observed that one of the themes of the letter to the Ephesians is the power of God over and above the power of the evil one and his agents. And you can see how this would be quite relevant to the people of Ephesus. They're coming out of a world of arbitrary deities, magic spells, demonic power, and they would be concerned, or they would be tempted to be concerned, will God really protect me? Do I actually have the power to stand against sin and against the evil one? And Paul's message in Ephesians is, yes, you do. The Lord is with you. He has saved you. He has given you life. He has sealed you with his spirit. He's empowered you with his truth. But Paul's also keen to, to note there will be a battle. You must fight for the Lord's sake every day. You must stay on the alert. You must pray. You got to realize you are not dealing with people in terms of a battle, but you're dealing with the dark forces of this world. You can't let your guard down. Some days will be easier than others, but you've got to persevere. And that's that coincides with what we see at the very end of the book of Ephesians. Put on the armor of God. Stand firm until God grants relief and deliverance. Because that is the Christian life. Have you discovered that yet? As we've even discussed ourselves in the very sunny schools, being a Christian is both easy and difficult. It's joyous and sorrowful. It's total rest. And it's also constant battle. There's not going to be a silver bullet when it comes to our struggle against the flesh and against the evil one. There's no secret truth that you can uh, you can learn that will make temptations and persecutions just suddenly cease and evaporate, but you can grow and you are guaranteed victory through Christ if you will believe in him. As Paul says in Romans 8, 37, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Now, normally I wait to the end of our lessons to talk about application, but I'm going to actually Go right to that now. Our third step in our method. What's the application of this? A couple things. Think about what the Ephesians did. They burned their magic books. Do you also need to do that kind of thing in your life? Think about what they did. Think about why they did it. Do you need to do that? To confess sins publicly so that others might be... Um, See the power of God at work in your life and not be misled as you were? Do you need to finally obey Christ's command 
even the ones that we just read and looked at, to cut off those things that cause you to stumble or that might cause others to stumble, even if it's a, a cost to you? Do you need to stop holding on to something that the world says is valuable, but what you know is actually hateful to your soul and to the cause of Christ? Second question to ask, do you believe in the power of God? We certainly see it on display in the, in the city of Ephesus. We see it described and applied in the various New Testament letters. But do you believe in it? Not only to save you eternally through Christ's work, but also to deliver you from sin, from the evil one, from all men who are opposed to God and to those who act in faith. It is a very common Christian temptation to despair of overcoming certain sins, to give up in trying to be a witness to God for others, to just say, well, you know what? This is who I am. I can't change. That's not what the power of God shows us. We see that if we have faith in Christ, God is able to grant victory, even for the most established sins, our, our darkest habits, and even against the greatest supposed powers of the world. All power belongs to God. He's superior to any supposed power in the world. But do you believe that? Have you actually taken up the armor? Have you called on the resources that God has given you in the church? Don't raise the white flag when you have such a power on your side. Have faith. Let's now consider Paul's other interaction with the Ephesians later on in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20. We're going to skip over the persecution that arises in Ephesus. You may know of it. The persecution arises from the idol makers, actually. Ephesus was famous for its temple of Artemis. Don't think Artemis of Greek mythology, the huntress. Think Artemis of the, um, the, of the Asians, of the Ephesians. That would be a fertility goddess. There's this riot that takes place because the idol makers are upset that they're losing their business due to people believing the gospel. But God provides. Paul is not harmed. There, while a riot and, it takes place and people gather in the assembly, it's dispersed by the, by the city magistrate and the Christians are not harmed. But Paul does end up moving on from Ephesus, continues the rest of his missionary journey, and on his way back, to Jerusalem, on his way to Jerusalem, he passes by Ephesus to the city of Miletus, and he sends for the elders. Let's look at the message that Paul gives to the elders as he passes by, and note what this, what this message of exhortation, not only what is he trying to say to them, what does he think is important to tell them, but notice how it describes further his ministry in the city of Ephesus. Verses 17 to 38 in chapter 20. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, 
not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who are with me. In everything, I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. Let's observe this section of text. Notice the way Paul describes his ministry in Ephesus. Verse 19, he says he served with humility, with tears, and through many trials. He declared everything to them that was profitable, the whole purpose of God. He was teaching publicly and from house to house, verse 20 says. So that would be both preaching and personal discipleship, or what we could even call counseling. He was solemnly testifying, verse 21 says. So solemnly, that is, he's serious. He's not putting on airs. He's not being disingenuous. He's not putting on a show. He's earnest with them. And he's teaching both Jews and Greeks, not showing any prejudice or favoritism. And what's his message? Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And what is that? That's the gospel. He remarks that he had a serious, serious commission of Christ to carry out, a course marked out for him, which he dare not deviate from. And it was three years of constant admonishment with tears, verse 31 says. And we could, we could surmise what, what those tears came from, his weeping over sin, his um, weeping over the consequences of sin, the... the um, What's the word I'm looking for? The terrible, the terrible danger that people are in without Christ. And certainly the, the lostness of those in Ephesus who had not yet believed. Another thing that Paul brings up in this final address to the Ephesian elders is his innocence. He says, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Why? 
He tells us. He says, because I declare to you the whole purpose of God. And you can see the implication in that. If he had not declared the whole purpose of God, what would have been true of him? That he had blood on his hands. And this might remind you of what something was said in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel chapter 3, when Ezekiel was called as a prophet, God told him, I'm setting you up as a watchman. And whatever I tell you, you better tell Israel. Or better tell the, the exiles. Because if you don't, and they don't turn from their ways, I will require their blood at your hand. Paul has that same idea. But he says, I'm innocent because I declare to you the whole counsel of God, the whole purpose of God. He also says, I'm innocent of any covetousness. And again, he tells us exactly why. How do we know that? Because I worked with my own hands to provide for myself and for my companions. So you cannot accuse Paul of preaching for money. He was no leech, no loafer. He worked a day job, at least for part of the time, so that he could provide for himself and his companions. But he tells us further that there was a reason he did that. Not simply so that no one could accuse him of covetousness, but notice verse 35. He says, in everything, I showed you. I showed you that by working hard. And then he goes on. He was providing an example for the Ephesians and for the Ephesian elders. I want you to see what a minister ought to do. He ought to work hard. He ought to help the weak. He ought to remember Jesus' words. That it's greater to give. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Notice that Paul also gives some warnings in this final message. He says, first of all, I'm going to Jerusalem to suffer for Christ's sake in the Gospels. You're not going to see me anymore. But also, more importantly, after I leave, false teachers are going to come. And this is the same thing we see echoed elsewhere in the New Testament, right? Valedictory addresses usually contain a warning against false teachers. Second Peter, Second Timothy, right? When these apostles are about to die, they specifically warn against false teaching. Paul tells the Ephesian elders here, wolves are going to come in. They even will arise from within the group of elders and the flock at Ephesus. So what do the elders need to do? Verse 28, guard the flock as the spirits appointed overseers. Stay alert, verse 31, and remember my example, verse 31. And then, of course, they part. They, they pray together, they weep together, and they express their affection to Paul. Now, there's just one interpretation question I want to ask in response to these observations. Paul certainly sets a great example as to what it is to be a minister of Christ. But for whom is his example meant? He tells them, I was trying to show you what it looks like to be a minister. And certainly, the most direct application would be the Ephesian elders. They're going to be leaders and teachers. They need to see Paul's example. And that applies to any elder, teacher, leader in the church. But we'd be remiss if we didn't note that Paul's example really is for all believers. I mean, if it's for the elders, it's also for the people, the, the normal people in the church. 
they are to imitate their leaders. And if their leaders are to act like Paul, then they also to act like Paul. Let us not forget that we are all slaves in our master's house. That is Christ. We are all members of the same body, building up one another as God meant us to do. Therefore, we are all to do as Paul did, to serve with humility, to serve with earnestness, even tears, as we look to build up, to give, and to guard. You know, people often talk about being called to ministry. I don't know if he's called. Are you called to ministry? Is he going to enter the ministry? Does he have the calling? But you know what the biblical truth is? We're all called to ministry. This is what God has given each member of the body to do. We serve in various ways, but we're all called. So this ministry model, this example left by Paul is for all of us. He shows us what a godly service or godly ministry looks like. He modeled himself upon Christ. And so we also can follow Paul's example. And so when it comes to application, that's exactly what we should be thinking about. What does your ministry on behalf of Christ look like? Does it look anything like Paul's? I don't mean the scope of ministry. You know, say, oh, I'm not doing miracles. I'm not traveling all over. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the character. I'm talking about the quality of your ministry, your service. Does it follow the pattern that Paul exemplified? And really, the pattern that we see in our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you serve? Do you serve with humility? Emptying yourself just as Christ did, unconcerned whether people notice you or not. Do you serve with earnestness, realizing that serious realities are in the balance? Do you serve through suffering, hardship, and tears so that others might be blessed? Do you serve without base ulterior motives? Do you stay alert in your service, realizing, and this is very important for us, realizing that this is not a world where everybody is just okay. I'm okay, you're okay. No, this is a world where sin has wreaked havoc, even in the lives of your brothers and sisters in the church. You know, we can all put on a smiling front in church, and politeness seems to suggest we do that. But you know what the reality is, and we can tell this from the scriptures, is that we all need help. There are deep spiritual wounds, struggles within the body. They need ministry. And this is nothing to say of those who are lost totally without Christ and in danger of entering eternal blackness and torment. Our materialistic society would love to lull us into a, a drowsy stupor, convincing us that nothing is amiss, we're all fine, let each man pursue his own pleasure and his own comfort, everything's okay. No, that's a lie of the devil. It appeals to our flesh that doesn't want to do anything, but the reality is this is a desperately broken world. It needs Christ. Each one of the members of the church needs Christ, needs to grow more in Christ. And so we need to stay alert. We need to recognize what the reality is. And that's got to inform our service. Another thing we can ask based on Paul's example is, do we serve determined to declare the whole counsel of God, the whole purpose of God? Not only what is popular, what is acceptable, what is sure to bring praise, but in what God actually gave us to say. 
God gave it all because we need it all. And it's true, yes, some people need certain things before they need other things. But let us never avoid what needs to be said. Or avoid what needs to be done for the sake of the lost, for the sake of a brother or sister in Christ. Of course, as I said, these questions, this application is particularly important for the leaders and teachers at Calvary. Myself included. But it's really for all of us. So what does your ministry on behalf of Christ look like? I know that many of you do serve Christ, both formally and informally, both in the church and in the home and in the world. So excel, excel still more. But for any of us who have fallen asleep in useless indulgence, it's time to wake up. Believe Christ, serve the body. Jesus did say, According to Apostle Paul, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So as we end today's lesson, please remember these three application questions. Continue to meditate on them. Ask the Lord, God, how can I be more in the, the pattern of Christ? Do I have any magic books of my own to burn? Do I really believe in the power of God? And what does my ministry on behalf of Christ look like? Does it follow the pattern? given even by Paul and by the Lord Jesus. Any quick questions before we end today? That's fine. If there are anything that comes up or any other comments you want to make, you can always email me. Next week, we'll look at what is sometimes called Paul's fourth missionary journey. But this one was a little different than the other ones because it was an all-expense-paid trip by the Roman government to Rome. Let's close in prayer. My Lord God, we thank you for this word, for the examples that are given us in the book of Acts. Lord, what a great comfort it is to know that you are the all-powerful one. We indeed have nothing to fear, but God, our flesh really wants to fight against that truth and say, no, I dare not. I dare not go out on a limb for God. Oh, this sin, I'll never be able to overcome it, or I'll never be able to speak to these people. Lord, you have not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and of boldness. So God, increase our faith let us be let's be faithful servants for your name's sake that we would love and build up the others in the church and love and seek to rescue the lost god because they are not okay despite what they think and lord i pray that you would be gracious to to continue to build up your church sanctify it guard it and help us to do our part in building up and guarding your church in jesus name amen